You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, church family. It's good, good to see you this morning. Yeah, it's what a privilege and a grace it is to get to gather together to worship. Guys, thanks for leading us. Um, it's, just a, it's just a grace to be able to be together as God's church uh, week after week and to reorient our hearts and our minds and our affections around what is good and true and right and around the grace of Jesus that is abundant for us. And so welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you as well. My name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer. I serve as our pastor of preaching and vision, and uh, we are so glad that you are here this morning. We're actually in a sermon series uh, during the month of July called Values and Voices. And what we're doing this summer is we're really wanting to revisit some of the things that we value as a church. Every family has values, and your values really shape who you become. They, they Values shape culture, values shape people. And so what we're wanting to do in this series is really look at what are some of the things that we value as a church, and why do we value the things that we value? And, and so not only are we looking at some of our values in this series, but you're getting a chance to hear from some different leaders in our church who don't normally preach, but these are leaders who are leading out in these values in our church family. And today, uh, we're going to get to hear from Chris. Chris, you can come on up. Chris is, uh, you guys can clap for Chris. There you go. Um, uh, we'll switch sides here. All right. Um, you're, you're used to normally seeing Chris up here leading worship. Chris is our pastor of worship and arts here at Redeemer, and this morning he's going to lead us through our value of being a, a creative family or a people of creativity as God's people. And so I can't wait to hear from you, Chris. This is your first sermon at Redeemer, yes, right? it is. So it Chris is. has been leading for a long time here, and the first time that he'll get to preach. So I want to I pray for you, brother, and excited to hear from you. God, thank you so much for Chris for the word that you've put in his heart this morning. Thank you for how he's led our church and the conviction, the calling that you've given him to not only lead us into worship Sunday after Sunday, but to lead us into being a people of creativity, that we would, Lord, image you. We are image bearers of you, creator God. So help us to learn this morning, to see what it looks like to use the gifts and the skills that you've given us, that you've redeemed in us, to display your glory, to point to your gospel in this world. We pray that you would fill Chris with your spirit now. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Ron, am I good? Am I on? Sounds like I'm on. This is this is a new mic for me. I'm used to holding an instrument on the stage. I'm like, what do I do with my hands when I have to when I have to talk? But everybody's take a deep breath. We're gonna have a good time talking about creativity this morning and, and being a creative family. It is it is a great privilege and joy to uh, to get to share with you on this topic. You guys ready to dive in and talk about creativity? You guys did good. That was a test run. We're gonna have some responsive questions here. You guys, you guys are doing good. Here's here's the next one. How many of you would define yourselves as an artist or a creative? Hey, that's more than I thought. That's more than I thought. We might have a majority of artists and creatives in this room, and that is awesome. But the good news for those of you who who didn't raise your hand is that my hope today is to paint a picture of why creativity matters for us as a collective church family and to see creativity through the lens that God has intended us to view it through. Before I dive into that topic, I'll share a quick, quick background on myself. I, I knew from a young age that, that God was calling me into ministry, wanted to use me in ministry in some form or fashion. So when I went to college, I don't know why I did this, but I majored in accounting 
and I minored in music. So the, uh, the, uh, the university I went to had actually had a specific wor worship music track, and it's been cool to see how God has used that, and even he was leading me in those days as an 18-year-old to fast forward to today, and I get to spend part of my week using my accounting degree to help churches and nonprofits and ministries, and I also get to spend part of my week using music that I've studied to, uh, to, to serve here as elder and, and pastor of worship and arts. So, so let me just say at the outset, look, I, I get it. I understand that, that I am probably not the prototype that the world would look to as a, as a trailblazer of creativity. Uh, I'm a 39-year-old CPA who lives in the suburbs. Uh, I'm a dad with a dad bod. I like to tell dad jokes. Some, some might call me a little less Mac and a little more PC. Uh, we were, my wife and I were joking. went to Kalahari a couple days ago, and uh, I made the prudent decision to wear the same dorky water shoes that I used to give my dad a hard time about wearing. I'm like, man, now I'm at this phase of life where I'm doing this. But while, while those can be funny examples, it, it speaks to the larger point I want to make this morning that there's a better story around culture making and the voices that can shape creativity. You see, I have an unshakable conviction that part of my calling is to pastor artists and creatives and to lead us forward in this value of being a creative family. So what does that look like? What, is, what does that mean to be a, a people of creativity in a culture of consumption? Just know that, that today is the, the tip of the iceberg, really. I could talk for hours on this topic, and we, we have planned equip classes and house shows and many creative endeavors that we, we want to do in the coming days and months as a church family. But this morning, I just want to spend a bit of time unpacking God's heart for his people and our practical next steps as a church. I imagine you may have some questions running through your mind. Maybe it's a question of how is creativity core to, to living out the gospel? Or maybe you don't think of yourself as a creative and wonder how this applies to you. Or maybe you've put yourself out there, something creative, and it hasn't gone well and, and you were discouraged. Has anyone else felt that? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Maybe you wonder, why should we spend time thinking about creativity with all of the hurt pain, loss, trauma our world has experienced for the last 18 months. These are all valid concerns, but I want to connect this value to something deeper that is at the core of our being image bearers of God. Because you see, creativity is really a theology around how we work and how we steward what God has given us. It's how we partner in his mission and to where he's leading us. So here's the main idea. I'm going to give it to you right up front. It should be on the screen behind me. Creator God, in his kindness, invites us into the joyful work of using our creativity and gifts for his mission and work in the world. I'll say it one more time. Creator God, in his kindness, invites us into the joyful work of using our creativity and gifts for his mission and work in the world. See, there are, there are specific attributes that only God possesses. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, present in all times and places. It what's it's what makes him God. He's unique and different from us, his creation. 
But there are other attributes of God that he shares with us. You probably can think of some. Love, joy, peace. Creativity is actually one of those shared attributes from God. What an incredible thought that creator God has given us the ability to display and spread his creativity in the world. Just, just invite you to, to think back to the last time you stopped and marveled at creative beauty. For me, those moments are often when I'm in nature or something around music, even, even in sports. Did you know that even in sports, we can see God's creative beauty? Anyone else excited for the Olympics that are starting up this week? Summer Olympics are happening. My family and I, we love to watch the Olympics. So I looked it up, and in this Summer Olympics, there will be medals awarded across 339 events in 35 different sports. That's pretty incredible if you really think about that. Someone had to dream up and create 339 different events that, that we get to enjoy And athletes give a lifetime of dedication so that for two weeks, every four years, we get to enjoy incredible athleticism and artistry on display. And in those moments where I get to experience created beauty, I try to stop. I want to be thankful that in those moments that I get to experience God's goodness in part to what we believe and know we will see one day in full. Often, though, I feel something different in those moments, something missing, unfulfilling. I I feel an ache, a longing for more, a fear of never being able to experience that moment in that way again. Why is that? Why do we feel those things? Because we are sinners, and our lens for perceiving beauty is foggy. It's a foggy lens that's been handed down through the generations all the way back to Adam, You see, if we're honest about what's really going on in our hearts in those moments where we experience created beauty, it's usually one of two things. One, it can be a response of pride. We want to be the heroes of the story. We want to be the ones standing on that Olympic podium receiving the the glory and adoration and praise from the adoring crowd. It can be pride. It can also be a response of apathy. I tried to write a song, and it was terrible. I don't know why that was the, the uh, example that came to mind for me. Uh, I've put myself out there in some creative way, and it didn't go like I wanted it to, so I'm going to choose apathy. I'm going to check out. I'm going to disengage. So here's, here's the problem. From the beginning, Adam and Eve chose to take creation and use it for self rather than steward it for God's glory. And we are no different. As a result, our sinful and wicked hearts are bent towards consumption over creativity. We see creation through the lens of Adam. It's a sinful lens. It's a foggy lens. We need a better lens and a better story. So let's look to Genesis chapters 1 to 3 for guidance. Three points today, three main points I want to draw out of this Genesis text. And the first is this. What is a biblical worldview of creativity? To understand being a people of creativity, we must be sure in our belief of who God is and his purposes for his people. At Redeemer, we we believe scripture is authoritative in our lives. And so what scripture says about God, we believe to be true. You look at scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from 
the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And we are told of our great creator God. To give you just a few examples, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. From the beginning of time, God's had a beautiful plan of creation that started in the garden. In Genesis chapter 1 we see God's power and creativity on display. He orders the, word, the world by the spoken word of his mouth. Genesis 1 also gives us great insight into the heart, plan, and design of God. What does the very first verse of Scripture say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I love that imagery of how we see the Spirit at work in creation. The remaining verses of Genesis 1 detail the account of the creation days. And in that, God models for us a pattern of work and rest. And when we see him working, we see a God who is an artist unlike any other. What artist could be a better artist than God? The next time you read through the creation account, examine all the aspects of God's creativity and beauty on display. Then in chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, something pretty incredible happens. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, Genesis is not the only creation account. In other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, gods often created humans as cheap labor because they didn't want to work anymore. Work was a burden to them. It was beneath them. But our God, the one true God, creator God, delighted in the work of creating the world. He created a world that we could flourish and we could thrive in. God made us in his image. We are mirrors, reflectors, signposts, reflecting in visible ways to the invisible God, made in his image, invited to rule over his creation. So in Genesis 1, we see God's power and creativity on display. And Genesis 2 shows us his nearness. He sculpts Adam from the ground. He places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and walks and talks with them in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's skip down to verse 15. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work 
to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The next verses go on, verses 19 and 20. God asked Adam to name the animals. God is not incapable of naming the animals, but God, what's he doing here? He's inviting us into the work of creativity. Then the next verses, God creates again, causing Adam to fall asleep and creating Eve from his rib. After God creates Eve, in verse 23, we have the very first words spoken by a human in Scripture, and it's a poem that Adam wrote to Eve. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's happened so far in the story? Genesis 2.15 is key. God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and tells him to work and keep it. Scholars call Genesis 2.15 the cultural mandate, and this is important. You see, work wasn't a curse of the fall. How we have to work is a result of the curse of sin. God commanded work and care of his good creation prior to sin. See, we weren't created to be idle consumers of God's creation, but to live a life of rewarding work as co-laborers with God. We see in this Genesis account, God gives another mandate. He tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. What, what does this show us about God? It shows us God's goodness, that he provided so many trees that they could, they could eat from. It also displays his sovereign rule that he commanded them to abstain from eating at one. His goodness brought the tree of life. His desire for faith and obedience brought the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see even in the garden, faith and obedience brought about communion with God. Adam and Eve were instructed to fast at one tree so they could feast at another. God creates the universe. He places Adam and Eve in the garden. He asks them to, to fill the earth and subdue it, to, to do something with it. In short, Adam and Eve were asked to be culture makers. Tim Keller says, Work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. Things were off to a great start for Adam and Eve, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, the villain enters the story. This brings us to our second point this morning. Why do our hearts run to consumption instead of creativity? And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and in verse 1, we see the serpent comes and talks to Eve. So let's, let's take a quick sidebar from the story for just a second, and let's talk about the serpent. We know from Revelations 12 and 20 that the serpent was the physical manifestation of Satan. Satan was, was cast down from heaven by God and seeks to, and he roams the earth seeking to kill, steal, and destroy God's creation and to deceive mankind. There's a really interesting passage in Ezekiel 28 that appears to be describing the fall of Satan, which says, 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. In the ancient world, snakes symbolized life. They symbolized wisdom, but they also symbolized chaos. So as we, as we jump back into the story, then it's no surprise that, that Satan comes to Eve in the form of a serpent. You see, God gave Adam and Eve permission to co-labor in creating beauty and order in his world. And Satan comes seeking to stir up chaos. Adam and Eve were tasked with guarding God's sanctuary against the forces of evil already at work in the world. They were given authority to rule over the serpent, but that's not what they chose to do. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve misused their God-given authority over the serpent. They listened to him, disobeyed God, and the consequences of this disobedience were tragic and massive. We see it spread from the garden through the book of Genesis, and that sin still affects us today. Sin has fogged the mirror by which we show forth God's holiness. That we are still made in his image, we have lost the ability to commune with God outside of a sacrifice for our sins. The act of eating the fruit God said not to was a questioning of God's goodness, his word, and an act of self-dependence. How did Satan come and tempt Eve? He reminded her of the things that God said she couldn't have. He called God's motives into question. Did God really mean what he said? Genesis 3 and verses 8 through 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I read this passage and I think to myself, how did we get here? Adam, you were just writing poetry to your wife in the garden. You guys communed with God face to face. He comes in and walks with you in the cool of the day. How did we get here? This time when God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, they are hiding. 
And even though God fully knew of their disobedience, he initiates and pursues them with a question, where are you? Intimacy has been shattered, trust has been broken, and we see the first admission of guilt as Adam and Eve become aware they are naked. God asks Adam if he ate of the fruit, and what does he do? He points the finger at Eve, which was ultimately pointing the finger at God. This woman you gave me made me do it. Sin rears its ugly head. And let me just say right now, maybe you're going through a rough patch in your life. You want to blame God? I've been there. The beauty of being a family of God's people is we can walk alongside one another when we are hurting and encourage one another to, instead of pointing the finger and blaming God, to open our hands and receive of his mercy and grace in our time of need. The rest of Genesis 3, God curses the serpent. He foreshadows Christ's victory on the cross in verse 15 when he declares the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. He lets Eve know that the beautiful gift of childbirth will now come with pain. He lets Adam know that work is going to be really hard. He removes them from the garden. They can't commune with God there anymore. They can no longer guard against the forces of evil in God's sanctuary because they have been corrupted by it. Sin has made the mirror foggy. So where does that leave us? Third and final point this morning, how do we embrace this value of being a people of creativity? The Genesis account in the garden begins so beautifully, it ends so sadly. But if we believe that all of the gospel is for all of life, then we have to decide what we do with God's command in Genesis 2 to work and cultivate his creation. That wasn't negated by sin. God's plan wasn't stopped. God's desire for us is to rule and subdue the earth and create culture and steward and protect his creation from evil. That hasn't changed. But what has changed since Genesis chapter 3 is we no longer have to view creation through the lens of Adam because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. God is overcoming all of sin's effects. By faith in Jesus, our sin is forgiven and our lives are restored including the restoration of our call to create with God as part of his mission. Our hope, friends, is in Jesus. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives another mandate. It's called the Great Commission. As we've seen, the cultural mandate in Genesis 2 is to fill the earth and subdue it. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Some theologians believe that the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that Jesus was actually reframing the cultural mandate of Genesis 2 in light of human sin and the coming kingdom. Regardless if that is true or not, we still clearly see two commands in Scripture that relate to our calling. To rule over the earth, to make culture where there's chaos, and to make disciples, then those disciples that have found relationship with creator God join with us in the mission of Genesis 2. What a beautiful picture of the fullness of the gospel. That's why we often talk about using our gifts to to step into broken places and to, to help broken people. See, we're all broken people outside of the mercy and forgiveness of God. But it's in the broken places that we can bring beauty from chaos, and it's in our 
time of need that we are receptive to the gospel. Make culture, make disciples. This is our call and our mission. So what are some practical next steps for us to embrace being a people of creativity in Jesus? Just three things. If you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with these three practical next steps. One, pray. Pray. Pray for God's glory to be shown. Pray and thank God for the gifts he's given us. Pray to cultivate gratitude in our hearts. Pray and ask God how he wants to use our gifts. Secondly, do great work. Whatever work we do, and I'm not just talking vocations and paychecks. Parenting is God-ordained work. Our service to this church is God-ordained work. Whatever work we do, let's be diligent at it as good stewards. Let's be faithful in our work to remember that we are mirrors and reflectors to the invisible God. Some of our work glorifies God directly. Some of our work glorifies God indirectly, and that's okay. If God has given you a seed of power in your work, ask him how you can use it for the good of others and his purposes. If you're in a season right now where work feels hard, where you're struggling, ask God for patience. Ask God for eyes to see how your work can bless others and glorify him. And finally, the third thing, press into creativity. Let's press into creativity together. Bring your arts and gifts to the church. We need them. Bring them here. Don't go at this alone. Seek out others and ask them where they see God has gifted you. Look for opportunities to use those gifts. Look for opportunities to genuinely encourage those in our church family doing this work of creating and cultivating for God's glory. I truly believe that when we engage in this work together, empowered by the Spirit of God, that the sum is much greater than its parts. Work was given to us by Creator God before the fall. Creativity was entwined in that work, and we believe work will continue on in the new creation. Our work matters. Our creativity in that work matters, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem to us. As children of God, we get to experience his good gifts of creation for all of eternity. I mean, think about this. We get to spend an eternity exploring the unfathomable depths of his glory, his majesty, and all that he has created. We will continue on the work started in the garden, but without the curse of sin and without the presence of evil. That hope confronts our anxious hearts that want to consume all we can before the clock strikes zero. That hope ignites prayers to become a spirit-empowered people with hearts of gratitude for God's good gifts. That hope puts our gifts to use within a gospel family to paint a picture of life in God's kingdom. That hope strengthens us to walk alongside the hurting and broken to show them that they can enjoy the goodness of God too. Jesus forgives our sins, saving us from a life of empty consumption and is redeeming us to work and create in his power for his glory. Praise be to God. I close with this. When you read the end of the Bible story in Revelation 
you see lots of Garden of Eden imagery. Revelation's final chapters mentions the tree of life, the river. No longer will there be any curse. They will reign forever and ever. But the author of Revelation, he wasn't, he wasn't talking about a garden. He was talking about a city, the new Jerusalem. In the book Garden City by John Mark Comer, he beautifully reminds us the garden wasn't supposed to stay a garden. It was supposed to become a city. Our world is what's left of the garden. Our job is to take what's left and to create better things, to take care of it, to beautify it, and to bring others into that journey as we make disciples of all nations. Let's ask the Spirit to breathe life into our imperfect efforts. Let's look for areas of brokenness where creation is out of order and people are hurting. We long for the day when we feast at the great banquet table in the new Jerusalem with all tribes and tongues. But until that day, we work as God has called us to work. We create and cultivate and care for. This work is costly, but it comes with great joy, and it is a worthwhile endeavor. Let's be a people of creativity. Will you pray with me? Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.